0: This is Reaction. Movements, moments, and monsters of the reactionary right. Episode 7. Terror on Screen, Part 2. Everybody Breaks. In the wake of the September 11th attacks, producers were postponing the release of films and TV shows left and right. The going theory was that Americans had, at least temporarily, lost their appetite for bad guys and explosions. Scenes containing terrorist plots and destroyed buildings were edited out of films and TV shows, including General Hospital, The Simpsons, Family Guy, SpongeBob SquarePants, and Pokemon. For months and even years after, Hollywood largely shifted to family fun and comedies, feel good narratives about best friend hijinks or escapist genres like sci-fi. 2002 was the year of Spider-Man, which had its shot of the iconic Twin Towers edited out, Star Wars, Harry Potter, and My Big Fat Greek Wedding. On TV, CSI showed capable law enforcement solving murders here at home. Friends tried to convince us that 20-somethings could afford spacious apartments in Manhattan, and American Idol gave us cranky Simon Cowell, judging the talent of fame-hungry singers. But one terrorism television show stubbornly went ahead with its release. Fox's hit drama 24. Well, to be fair, they did postpone a little. The original launch date of October 30th was pushed back a whole week. But just two months after the attacks, Americans were treated to the story of counterterrorism agent Jack Bauer thwarting an assassination plot against presidential candidate David Palmer. The bad guys are aggrieved citizens of Kosovo, seeking revenge for the killing of a political figure in a U.S. secret operation that both the presidential candidate and Jack Bauer carried out. The good guys win, but at a hefty cost. Jack's partner and one-time love interest Nina is revealed to be a double agent, and she kills Jack's pregnant wife, Terry. The show was really well-received, earning Kiefer Sutherland a Golden Globe Award for his portrayal of Jack Bauer. In this episode, I'm going to focus on Season 2 of 24 for a couple of reasons. First, it's the first season produced after 9-11, which makes it a good candidate for understanding how the attacks shaped American narratives about terrorism. And second, it focuses specifically on Middle Eastern terrorism, which was obviously a salient theme for a culture experiencing the buildup of the War on Terror. And as we'll see, the show itself had a direct impact on operations in the Middle East. 24 is unique for its real-time narrative. Each episode depicts one hour of events, and each season has 24 episodes. So every action-packed season portrays a single day in the life of Jack Bauer and the Los Angeles Counterterrorism Unit. The timeline is a total mess. Jack manages to drive clear across L.A. in 8 minutes and take a 150-mile helicopter ride in 18 minutes— which even the world's fastest helicopter today can't manage. But it does give the show an energy that's almost intoxicating. Don't look away, even for a minute, or you'll miss the action. It also uses split-screen scenes to show you that every side plot is advancing even as other things are going on. Jack is speeding down a dirt road while his daughter Kim is lost in the woods, and CTU agents are cracking an encrypted hard drive. The series received various Emmy and Golden Globe awards over its nine seasons, and was particularly noted for Kiefer Sutherland's excellent portrayal of Jack Bauer. It was a pretty big deal for a film powerhouse like Sutherland to star in a television show, and he was a huge part of 24's success. And the whole show has a very filmic feel to it, between the fast-paced narrative, the musical score, and the elaborate set design and settings. It was also well-known for its plot twists, especially at the end of seasons. But at the heart of 24 are the moral ambiguities the characters face, the complexities of good and evil, means justifying ends, playing by the rules or going rogue. Jack is often butting up against government officials and rules of engagement, personally suspending people's constitutional rights when the situation demands it. Jack is a man above men the rules don't apply to him the way they do to others, and the trust that his colleagues place in him to get the job done generally keeps him from facing any consequences for his actions. Season 2 follows the story of Middle Eastern terrorists plotting to detonate a nuclear bomb over Los Angeles. Following the murder of his wife, Terry, and their unborn child in Season 1, Jack has been out of commission for 18 months. Much of the first episode is CTU trying to get Jack to come back to work. After all, he's the only guy who can avert this crisis. But even after they inform him of the terror plot, Jack's singular priority is getting his daughter Kim out of L.A. Throughout the show, Jack has to navigate the tension between doing his job and protecting those he cares about, priorities that are often at odds with each other. In response to hearing about the plot, Jack leaves CTU immediately to go after Kim. Agent Tony Almeida does his best to convince Jack that they can secure Kim and stop the attack, but Jack isn't having any of it. Referring back to season one, he lashes out at Tony. I trusted everybody at CTU to protect my wife, and I lost her. I can't lose my daughter. But just as Jack gets in his car, he sees a mother walking with her young son. Cue sad, contemplative music, and Jack realizes this isn't just about his daughter. What about all the innocent civilians who will be killed if he doesn't act. Episode 1 ends with Jack standing before a mirror, shaving his fun-employment beard as the music swells. Classic. A mere 10 minutes into the next episode, Jack's beard has regrown his characteristic 5 o'clock stubble, and CTU is unable to find Kim. That's because the family Kim was living with as an au pair has been hiding a dirty secret. The father is abusing his wife and daughter, and Kim must escape with the young girl. For the rest of the season, Kim will be on the run from the violent father, the police, and the nuclear bomb itself. There are various subplots throughout the season. President Palmer, whom Jack saved from assassination in Season 1, is dealing with the nuclear threat and potential military action in the Middle East. CTU is fighting against pesky higher-ups to help Jack fight the bad guys. And a seemingly unrelated family deals with suspicions against a new addition to the family who happens to be Middle Eastern. All of these plot lines converge at various points in the narrative to form a coherent story. There are a few themes I'd like to talk about from the show, one of them being the protector-protectee relationship that's a common trope in the discourse on terrorism broadly. And at the heart of this discourse is the familial relationship between the state and its citizenry. In the aftermath of 9-11, President Bush becomes the protective father figure, the nation, the wives and children that he must keep safe. This takes a very literal form in 24, with Jack spending season one trying to protect Terry and Kim and eventually losing his wife Terry to the backstabbing traitorous Nina. He takes personal responsibility for his failure to protect his wife, even though it's plain to the audience that he did everything he could a plot device that serves to ramp up our sympathy for this broken man. In season two, his drive to protect his daughter Kim becomes all the more pressing. What makes this especially difficult for Jack is that their relationship has become strained since the death of Terry. Kim is resistant to his help, but once he alerts her to the nuclear threat, breaking protocol, I should add, as CTU goes under a strict no-contact order when there is an active threat, and agents are forbidden from talking to friends or family at all. But once Kim knows about the bomb, she finally complies with Jack's demand that she leave the city. But Kim has her own protecting to do. She can't simply leave the young girl she's been caring for, and the threat is doubled. The abusive dad and the ever-looming nuclear catastrophe. Men protect women. Women protect children. It's not unique to terrorism discourse, but it's turned up to 11 when there is an imminent threat. There are several other plot lines in the season along these lines, which I'll skip over for now, but a running theme is that women have to be convinced of the danger before they'll submit to the leadership of their protectors. Likewise, the U.S. citizenry had to be pummeled over the head with evidence that Iraq was developing weapons of mass destruction before accepting the necessity, insert air quotes, of military action in Iraq. As Bush told the American people in October of 2002, just a few weeks before season two of 24 aired, we cannot wait for the final proof, the smoking gun, that could come in the form of a mushroom cloud. This fact, that the danger is both imminent and cataclysmic, is what justifies the extreme actions taken by both President Palmer's administration and CTU agent Jack Bauer. And that leads me to the next trope that 24 took to new heights, torture. The use of extra-legal tactics is foundational to 24's storyline, and in season two, Jack tortures several people and is himself tortured by terrorists. The president also uses torture against a member of his own administration. Throughout the season, the claim that everybody breaks eventually is used to justify torture. As the goons trying to extract information from Jack tell him, you've been on this side before, Jack, and you know as well as I do, everybody has a limit to how much they can take. Everybody has a breaking point, even you. And this is true for everybody in the show, except, of course, Jack. Jack even tortures his torturer, and the same tactics that Jack withstood all episode take only a minute to break the lesser man. Of course, here in the real world, overwhelming evidence proves that torture often elicits false information, and intelligence specialists have said time and again that its use may actually hurt national security. Prisoners will say whatever their captors want to hear to end their suffering, giving useless or even detrimental intelligence. But in the world of 24, torture is not only effective, it is the only means by which vital information can be extracted from terrorists. 24 specifically has been criticized by military officials for its depictions of torture, most notably by U.S. Army Brigadier General Patrick Finnegan, the former dean of West Point. In 2006, he traveled to Hollywood to speak directly to the producers of 24 to implore them to stop depicting torture as an effective practice, that it was having a damaging effect on young troops. He said 24 should even do an episode where torture backfires, and that, The disturbing thing is that although torture may cause Jack Bauer some angst, it is always the patriotic thing to do. The world was horrified in 2004 when images from the Abu Ghraib prison in Iraq came to light. 50,000 men and women were held at Abu Ghraib in squalid conditions, and torture and executions were common. The photos of prisoners chained naked in contorted positions, covered in excrement, threatened with dogs, Forced to masturbate, being injected with various substances, and other horrors were widely circulated in the media. Smiling American troops gave the thumbs up next to corpses. Eleven soldiers at Abu Ghraib were convicted of dereliction of duty. Most received short sentences. Two men in high command didn't face criminal prosecution at all. No one was convicted of murder. Brigadier General Janice Karpinski told a reporter in 2014 that 90% of the prisoners at Abu Ghraib were innocent of the accusations used to detain them, that they had simply been in the wrong place at the wrong time. And then we moved on. On the campaign trail in 2016, President Trump proclaimed that torture works, that he would do everything he could to ensure U.S. troops were allowed to torture prisoners if they wanted to all to thunderous applause. In 2017, Pew Research found that Americans were split down the middle on whether torture is acceptable in certain circumstances, with the only significant demographic difference being between Republicans and Democrats, who supported torture by 71% and 31%, respectively. We have to ask ourselves where the support comes from, Undoubtedly, the Bush administration's assurances that torture not only works but is necessary played a big role in the public's perception of whether or not we should be doing it. And while President Obama admitted that, as he said, we tortured some folks and that we did some things that were wrong, he also added, I understand why it happened. It's important when we look back to recall how afraid people were. Of course, such a statement would seem to relegate the U.S. legacy of torture to the past. But in January of 2020, the psychologist James Mitchell, one of the architects of the CIA's torture program, testified at the proceedings of the alleged 9-11 conspirators at Guantanamo Bay that, I'd get up today and do it again. Renditions, the transfer of a terror subject to another country for interrogation, continued under Obama even after he supposedly ended the CIA's torture program. Who knows what shape those interrogations take. And long after Obama promised and failed to close Guantanamo Bay, UN human rights investigators have reported the continued use of torture techniques on the remaining prisoners there. But it isn't just official explanations of and excuses for torture that have primed the public to accept such extreme measures. Fictional media representations also contribute to our general ethos. Terrorism and torture have long been staples of entertainment media, but after 9/11, these depictions changed in both frequency and character. In 2007, the organization Human Rights First reported that prior to 9/11, primetime television featured fewer than four acts of terrorism per year. Six years later, that number had risen to more than a hundred. Not only that but the underlying ideology of the morality of torture had changed. As Human Rights First project director David Danzig noted, it used to be almost exclusively the villains who tortured. Today, torture is often perpetrated by the heroes. When there is moral pushback to the torture techniques used in 24, the characters are almost always depicted as naive, soft-hearted dupes who don't understand the gravity of the situation or the inherent evilness of the enemy. Jack is constantly telling those who don't agree with his tactics to stay out of his way, often for their own legal, or even spiritual, protection. The peer must be kept innocent of the grotesque nature of Jack's methods. Presumably the viewer doesn't fall into that category. But Kiefer Sutherland himself took issue with the depictions of abuse carried out by his character Jack Bauer the grandson of a former socialist leader in his home country of Canada, Sutherland has described his political views as left-leaning and apparently was upset by the show's ever-increasing reliance on torture as a narrative device. He told Charlie Rose in an interview that the events at Abu Ghraib were repulsive, that torture is an ineffective way of getting information from accused terrorists. But still, he hedged. After all, it's just a TV show, right? In 2006, the conservative think tank the Heritage Foundation hosted a panel on 24, moderated by the right-wing radio host Rush Limbaugh. Limbaugh is actually a good friend of 24 creator and producer Joel Cernow, and he sung the show's praises loudly and often. At the panel, Limbaugh told the audience that most of the show's writers and producers were conservative, which is true. But when he was interviewed by Jane Mayer for The New Yorker in 2007, he sang a different tune. People think they've got a bunch of right-wing writers and producers at 24, and they're subtly sending out a message. I don't think that's happening. They're businessmen. They don't have an agenda. Which is ridiculous. Cernow is an unapologetic, in his words, right-wing nutjob, who complains that conservatives are the new oppressed class. And he told Jane Mayer, Isn't it bizarre that in Hollywood it's easier to come out as gay than as conservative? When Mayer asked Limbaugh about 24's depictions of torture, he responded, It's just a television show. Get a grip. But according to Tony Lagaranis, a former army interrogator during the war in Iraq, 24 was extremely popular among the soldiers stationed there. In an interview with the same journalist, he said, People watch the shows— and then walk into the interrogation booths and do the same things they've just seen. So who is this terrorist group whose viciousness justifies Jack Bauer's abusive tactics? Second Wave a group of Islamic fundamentalists with suspected ties to an unnamed Middle Eastern country. Of course, the prime minister of this country denies any involvement with the group, telling President Palmer, I would appreciate it if you would stop using my people and my country as a source for every threat leveled against the United States. The climax of the plot of Season 2 is Jack's efforts to prove, or rather disprove, the association between one of the leaders of second wave and three countries that are variously referred to as Middle Eastern or Muslim. It's obvious why the show would take pains not to implicate any real-world country, given the actually existing military actions throughout the Middle East. Singling out any specific nation could be controversial, even detrimental to national security. When the television show The West Wing began featuring Middle Eastern terror plots after 9-11, They used the fictional country of Kumar as the venue for threats against the U.S. But 24 is a bit less imaginative than the West Wing. When the countries associated with Second Wave are referred to in the show, it's usually through an exchange of documents implied to have a list of countries on them. But aloud, they're simply referred to as Middle Eastern or Muslim countries. The main tension in the second half of the season— once the nuclear threat has been averted thanks to Jack's heroic efforts, is the question that weighs on President Palmer's conscience. Is the intelligence on the attackers solid enough to justify immediate retaliatory action? It all hinges on an audio tape that proves a connection between Second Wave and the three nameless countries, and at great effort, Jack finally proves that the tape is a fraud, and the Prime Minister was being truthful the president calls off the military assault with mere minutes to spare. It's comforting, right? That there is a president and law enforcement system doing its due diligence and confirming these sorts of things before jumping to military action? Instead of, say, inventing evidence out of whole cloth to justify an unnecessary war? It's further revealed that Second Wave isn't even the true mastermind behind the terror plot. Peter Kingsley, an oil magnate with ties to military and intelligence, orchestrated the plot to start a war between the United States and the Middle East to increase the values of his oil contracts in the region. Second Wave and their fundamentalist believers are mere pawns for Kingsley's financial interests. It's not exactly what we might expect from a show with fundamentally reactionary politics. Anti-corporate narratives are typically the territory of leftists. But, to my mind, the twist that Kingsley is responsible for the plot is just a smokescreen to downplay the producer's narrative that Islam is an enemy of the United States. Even for Middle Eastern characters who turn out to be uninvolved with terrorism, the show takes every opportunity to suggest to the audience that their motives are suspicious, that they are untrustworthy, through the use of ominous music and misleading conversations. And as we know, Joel Cernow had a very specific political agenda when it came to producing TV, and it would be naive to think that he didn't know exactly what 24's narrative would mean to a country mired in Islamophobia. However, the show should be praised for its depiction of anti-Muslim backlash following the revelation of the bombing plot. Citizens are shown on news broadcasts demanding the internment of Muslim Americans. As one man tells a reporter, If we'd locked down our borders 20 years ago like we shoulda, none of this woulda happened. Helpfully, the writers leave it up to you to decide if he's right or wrong. In one scene, a Middle Eastern character, whom we know to be working with CTU, is viciously beaten by three men. Hilariously, Nick Offerman, famous for his portrayal of Ron Swanson in Parks and Rec, is the head racist and calls the man a towelhead, telling the white woman accompanying him that, Only things worse than these bastards in our country is people like you. There's that classic trope of non-white men spoiling the honor of white women. Racist Ron Swanson then points his gun at the man and sneers, This is for messing with our country! But when he pulls the trigger, nothing happens, and he smiles, revealing that he's removed the clip from the pistol. But for every innocent Muslim experiencing violence at the hands of angry and frightened white people, there are five more evildoers plotting against the nation. And in an impressively unexpected twist, one of the supporting characters, a young and beautiful white woman named Marie, turns out to have been indoctrinated by Second Wave and is directly involved with the nuclear plot. Again, these baddies are corrupting our beautiful, blonde-haired, blue-eyed white women. Marie is depicted as completely brainwashed, utterly unreachable through logic or even appeals to her humanity. Her father says that after a trip to London, during which she was indoctrinated at a radical mosque, she returned home with less interest in the political causes she once cared about, like the environment and the death penalty. The CTU agent interrogating the father explains to him that this is a tactic of radicalization, one that helps budding terrorists blend into the general public. When Marie is confronted by her sister about her involvement with the terrorists, she tells her, I opened my eyes. That's what happened to me. I was pathetic, just like you, until I met Syed. Until I saw the lies and hypocrisy of my life, of this country, of people like Dad who helped the government. He works for the CIA, Kate. Do you have any idea what kind of suffering they cause around the world? Never for a moment does the show interrogate whether or not the grievances of Marie or Second Wave are at all legitimate. In a scene between one of the terrorist leaders and an Islamic cleric whom Jack has asked to help his interrogation, the men have an exchange about the legitimacy of Second Wave's actions. The cleric tells him that the Quran forbids the killing of innocents, but he responds that they have different interpretations of the text. The cleric pleads with him. You are misguided. Someone has twisted the words of the prophet. Allah does not love aggressors. Listen to me. The murder of one innocent, let alone millions, will not get you into paradise. The terrorist's response is cold-blooded and full of resolve. We will continue this debate when I see you there. In one of the most compelling scenes of the season, the final episode shows Marie chained to the floor of an interrogation cell her father and sister pleading with her for an explanation of her actions. Over ominous music, Marie tells her sister Kate, You think you'll be safe out there. You won't be. And that's the real ideological crux of 24, even more so than men being protectors, torture being necessary and effective, or Islamic fundamentalism being a grave threat. It's that we will never be safe. All around us, all the time. Terror attacks against the American people are just on the brink of success. The American public must be protected from not only the outcome of these attacks, but even from the very knowledge of their existence. Everything Jack Bauer, CTU, and President Palmer do throughout the show is done with the purpose of keeping the citizenry from panicking. L.A. can't be evacuated, the plot can't be reported on by journalists, and the agents' families can't even be warned except, of course, Jack's daughter, Kim. Early in the show, President Palmer detains a journalist who has sniffed out the existence of some kind of terror plot, and even though the journalist doesn't know all the details, the mere possibility that he could start a panic is enough for the president to lock him up, directly suspending his First Amendment rights. The constant threat from enemies within and without is heightened by the ticking time bomb scenario featured in every season. Jack and CTU are always trying to beat the clock, just on the brink of catastrophe. In addition to the narrative ticking time bomb, the show itself literally ticks by in real time. Every few minutes, a digital clock appears on the screen. 12, 23, 40, 41, 42. The ever-present... <laughs> reminding us that time is slipping away, that we're moments from disaster. As Stacey Tuckas writes in her book, Terrorism TV, The way these programs constructed their terrorist civilians and patriotic heroes helped normalize the state of emergency and promote the acceptance of policies of surveillance, detention, and interrogation that were fundamentally anti-democratic. Much of the work of legitimating these policies was performed not at the level of ideology, but at the level of affect— creating a sense of urgency and anxiety that led audiences to desire extreme action as a means of alleviating the perception of pressure. So, what's the relationship between what people see on screen and what they want in real life? Or between what happens in real life and what we see on screen? There's lots of media theory written on the subject that I won't bore you with, but the short answer is, it's complicated. We're, by and large, pretty smart. We realize that fictionalized events do not have a one-to-one correlation to real life. But none of us is immune to messaging and propagandizing. Audience reception theory and the work of cultural studies scholars like Stuart Hall argues that we read media messaging in a number of ways, a sort of direct absorption of the dominant narrative, a resistant reading, what we might now call hate-watching, or something in between. Most of us are in that in-between. But as Joel Surnow said of 24, it's ripped out of the zeitgeist of what people's fears are, their paranoia that we're going to be attacked. It makes people look at what we're dealing with and that there are not a lot of measures short of extreme measures that will get it done. America wants the war on terror fought by Jack Bauer. He's a patriot. When Jack's boss chastises him for killing a witness, he responds, You want to find this bomb? That's what it's going to take. That's the problem with people like you, George. You want results, but you never want to get your hands dirty. I'd start rolling up your sleeves. And according to conservative media figure Laura Ingram, the fact that Americans love Jack Bauer is as close to a national referendum that it's okay to use tough tactics against high-level al-Qaeda operatives as we're going to get. John Yoo, who drafted the Bush administration torture memos, which advised the CIA and DOD on useful torture tactics, asks in his book War by Other Means, What if, as the popular Fox television program 24 recently portrayed, a high-level terrorist leader is caught who knows the location of a nuclear weapon? But the ticking time bomb scenario that is the lifeblood of 24 is largely a figment of the national security imagination a circumstance in which government authorities know the details of an imminent terrorist plot and can get their hands on a terrorist who actually has useful information and will share factual intelligence under duress, is a fantasy. Still, it's a compelling fantasy, isn't it? Wouldn't it be nice if the dangers we faced weren't climate change and international oligarchy, but bad guys in unmarked vans hauling a nuke around L.A.? And even better— If we could count on Jack Bauer's stubble to do whatever it takes to save the day? As Cernal's close friend Cyrus Nauriste said in an interview, every American wishes we had someone out there quietly taking care of business. It's a deep, dark, ugly world out there. It would be nice to have a secret government that can get the answers and take care of business, even kill people. Jack Bauer fulfills that fantasy. Thanks for listening to this episode of Reaction. If you like the show, please rate and review it, and consider supporting my work by visiting patreon.com slash reactionpodcast. There you can find all the episode scripts, as well as bonus audio content that supplements the main episodes. Follow the show on Twitter at reactionpodcast for episode updates and commentary on current events. Send your questions or feedback to reactionpod at gmail.com. This show is produced by me, Brittany Gill. Until next time.